I started looking into machine learning in general, maybe four years ago. <laughs> and at first I started in, in Python because I don't think that TensorFlow.js was really like a well-known thing at the time. So I wanted to learn about machine learning so I could make my side projects a bit more interesting. And then I started learning about that and I realized that TensorFlow.js was a way for me to learn about machine learning, but in JavaScript, so I wouldn't have to switch languages. And yeah, it started from there. I built a few things and then I spoke at conferences and then I wrote a book. Hello and welcome to PodRocket. Uh, I'm Noel um, and joining us today is Charlie Gerard. Um, Charlie is, has got quite the quite the title here, but she's a senior developer advocate at Stripe, um, a Google developer expert in web technologies, and author of a book about TensorFlow. Am I missing anything? No, that's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> awesome. 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 Cool. So yeah, I guess just uh, let's jump in. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, um, and what you're working on right now. Uh, sure. So um, as you said, I'm a senior uh, developer advocate at Stripe. Um, and what I work on right now, uh, the way that people describe developer advocates kind of change different between different companies. But uh, to me, it's a part of maintaining our open source samples. So there's a lot of code in, in that part, uh, being able to work in, with different languages, because I'm more uh, proficient with JavaScript, but our samples are available in like Go and Python and Ruby, so I have to be able to contribute uh, to that as well. And uh, on the more educational side, um, I'm in charge of writing blog posts to either tell people how to, how they can use Stripe products, or even in general, um, I like to dive into a lot of random technologies, and Stripe is happy for me to do that as well. So anything that I can teach people about, I like to do that. <laughs> Nice, nice. So you said a big a big part of your role is like maintaining the the open source like examples and snippets and stuff. Is that accurate? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is is that like for all of Stripe? Because I mean, yeah, Stripe kind of has a very large uh, like product set at this point. Like, is there any any particular area where you're focused? Um, so in the way in the work that Stripe does open source, you have the uh, SDKs and the samples, and these are like two different things. Uh, but the samples are more on the advocacy side, where I basically show you how to use the SDKs. So I don't maintain the SDKs themselves. There's another team that does that. Uh, but the samples, there's, I think at the moment we have about like 50 of them. So it's a lot of work uh, maintaining that and it's just growing. It's never, we never really archive any. So my list of things to do uh, keeps growing, but it is around um, showing examples about how you can use Stripe checkout or how you can use uh, Stripe identity and each sample is, I mean, usually we would want to have them in all the seven languages that we support. So uh, it is quite a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a lot of code. It's a lot of code to be sure. How do you guys like go about that? How do you maintain stuff? Like if versions are updated and stuff, like you said, like stuff just kind of keeps getting added. How does that like all get tracked and managed? Yeah, well, I actually, um, I think for a while we were maybe not updating it as often as we should have. But since I, so I only joined uh, six months ago, about six months ago, and uh, I saw a lot of opportunities in in maintaining our um, our samples in more of a better way, or at least uh, making it easier in the long uh, run. So that's what I'm mainly focusing on is about how to deal with the long-term and updating things. So uh, our as our samples consume our SDKs, uh, for that, I, I 
automatically update the versions because there's no security issue. And in general, we would have some tests that would check if our samples break. Uh, before the third party um, tools that we use in our samples, I do uh, check for certain security issues if some people are trying to add some weird stuff uh, in, in our samples. So there's some manual work, some automated work, but I think that over time uh, I want to use um, a tool to check for security vulnerabilities in dependency updates that would allow me to automate more and more of the work um, so that I wouldn't have to do like all of it. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Can you give us an example of like a third party that would be used in a sample? Uh, so for example, uh, Express.js. So in our Node.js, uh, in the Node.js versions of our samples, when we spin up a server to show how to use Stripe checkout, for example, we use Express. And, um, and you know, there's like regularly uh, updates uh, to the version of that, of, that, uh, of that tool. So I need to check what has been merged. Is it like a minor update or a major update? Because depending on if it's minor or major, I will, I will also have to check if that dependency has broken our sample or not, not only in terms of uh, security issues, but also is it even still working? Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, so you talked about like using some tooling for that, especially around um, like vulnerabilities, but also there's like process work, I guess, outside of like the vulnerability checking, because I feel like we've, we've talked about that a lot, but like what other tooling uh, helps with kind of like you said, like there's all these different versions all everywhere, like, you know, on tons of different stuff, what kind of tooling or technology are you using to like kind of keep track of that, help manage, figure out what can just be updated with a button click versus like having to go in and tweak stuff. Yeah. So um, I'm, I've actually started kind of building my own automation system at Stripe to do that because um, so we could have some tests that we're kind of working on that at the moment where it would, uh, or like in a GitHub action, we could spin up our sample and check that at least the page is, is visible. Um, so, and if that check passes, then we could automatically merge the, the PR because the samples are usually quite simple in terms of interface. You might have one first page where you fill a credit card details and then you should have a success page after. Um, so it's not the same type of test that you would write for like a real like production application. Um, but then, uh, as I noticed that a lot of our samples use the same, um, the same third-party packages, for example, if I've checked it on one samples, I can automate the merge of that same version on all of the other samples that have the same PR open by Dependabot. So uh, I have done that a little bit and I'm testing out what would work, what doesn't. Um, but yeah, at the moment, that mix of like having the test that would check that the page still loads and at the same time, I do one manual check to check if it's working on one repo and then I wrote my own little CLI tool that just fetches all of the PRs open on all of the other repos and checks if there's one that matches the one that I'm currently manually checking. And if it does, then automatically merge, merge, merge. <laughs> so I don't know if it's like the best way to do it, but at the moment, it really reduces the amount of manual work that we have to do and the samples are still working. So it's like a, it's an in-progress work at the moment. Yeah, yeah, it's like a, it's like a some it's a somewhat unique problem, I think, especially in that there's like lots of um you're maintaining dependencies that are like or examples, I guess, that are in like a bunch of different languages. Um, so yeah, yeah, like we're talking, we've been talking to a lot of uh, like people that are contributing to like frameworks, and they kind of have a similar you know flavor of this problem, but at least they're like typically always targeting JavaScript or something. It's not like oh, we've got to like make sure this works in seven different languages. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm sure like that, that problem is a little bit unique. What 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 existed? I guess kind of what was this environment like when you stepped into it at Stripe? Like, was there 
a team at all maintaining it? Are you part of a larger org now or are you kind of kind of a, you know, solo person? So when I joined, there was uh, mainly one person in my team that was already doing that work. Uh, but that person is also doing a lot of other work. Uh, so that's why when I joined and I noticed that there were some improvements that we could make in terms of automation, um, now I've taken over that work and the person that was doing it before, uh, I can you know go to him if I have questions, but he's kind of freed up to do the rest of the work that he wanted to do. So um, I guess I'm may- probably the person that focuses most of the time on it at the moment, but the, the goal in the end with the automation would be that we would all, I mean, my entire team would have some freed up um, time as well, because I think that when I joined, uh, I think we were kind of merging just like, yeah, whatever, just merge. <laughs> I think it's like, it's probably, we knew that it wasn't the probably the best workflow, but there's a moment when you have 50 repos in one person, seven different languages like this, you know, yeah, you can't always do the things exactly the way that, that you would want to do them. Uh, but hopefully with what I'm working on, we can have more confidence that we, we know what we're merging and it works and it's safe. Um, so yeah, there's, you know, trying to leave things better than I found them. <laughs> yeah, no. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Like it sounds like, um, I guess maybe I should just frame it this way. Like when, when you when you stepped into it, uh, you kind of you said there wasn't a ton of automation, or there was, but it was like a little bit. Were, were you given quite a bit of autonomy on like figuring out what tools to use and like what made the most sense to set up in terms of automation? So at the moment, yes, definitely. It's uh, I go to my team and I say, "Hey, I want to do this," and they're like, "Cool," and then I go <laughs> and I do it. It's like I'm not really. I mean, I want to say yes and no, uh, just because also. With the fact that Stripe is a big company and financial company, there's some tools that I can't install on my computer. So there are sometimes some packages that uh, I won't be able to install. So I think so far I haven't really run into that that problem because the automation that I'm doing is uh, with the GitHub API, and then I'm you know using a tool that's not um, forbidden you know to use. So but yeah, if I if I was installing a, a, a package to, for example. Because the CLI that I'm building, I'm not using any uh, any other repos to spin it up or something. But if I was using a tool from GitHub that was um, forbidden, you know, uh, that I can't install, then I would have to find another solution. There's always like a workaround. But in terms of my team, there, you know, if it works and it helps everybody, we don't have like a preferred tool. Enjoying the podcast? Consider hitting that follow button for even more great episodes. Is there anything kind of on the horizon in that like automated tool chain workspace, any tech that you're excited about? Oh, I haven't really looked into what might be coming up. I think I, well, I would like to, what I want to do is to be able to rely a lot on GitHub Actions, um, but they don't always work as expected. (laughs) So, I mean, I guess if GitHub was working, if GitHub is listening to me right now and would like to make sure that they're working better, I would love for that to happen. Uh, But I don't, there's nothing right now that I'm like looking at that that is not yet available. Gotcha, um, gotcha. I mean, that's probably a good thing, right? If you feel like most of the stuff you need is there and available and working, it's probably yeah. probably an okay place to be. I guess, how about like, um, same kind of question, but from a Stripe standpoint, is there anything on like coming from Stripe that you're excited about that you've been writing up examples for or anything uh, recently? Uh, well, nothing that I would be able to talk about <laughs> because if it's not released, I, I can't talk about it. Um, yeah, I don't 
No, that's okay. That's okay. No worries. Um, I guess, yeah, moving away from Stripe a little bit. Um, how about how about TensorFlow? So, like, is this as is, is your work there been more recent, or was this kind of stuff you were working on before Stripe, or what was that timeline like? So I started looking into machine learning in uh, in general, maybe, what, what year is it now, 2022, uh, in like maybe four years ago. <laughs> yeah. uh, and at first I started in uh, in Python because it, I don't think that TensorFlow.js was really like a well-known thing at the time. So um, I wanted to use, to learn about machine learning so I could make my side projects a bit more interesting. Um, and then I started learning about that and I realized that TensorFlow JS was like, it would be a way for me to learn about machine learning, but in JavaScript, so I wouldn't have to switch languages. Um, and yeah, it started from there. I built a few things and then I spoke at conferences and then, uh, and then I write a book. That's it. <laughs> How things usually happen. <laughs> I mean, yeah, get, getting to authoring a book is pretty impressive, though. Um, yeah, what what does the book cover? Like, what's the main focus? So it's more for beginners. So if people already know a lot about TensorFlow.js, I, I don't think that they would learn anything new in there. Um, but it's to show uh, a lot of the things that TensorFlow.js can do. And especially, I want people to understand that it's, it maybe sounds scary, but it's not at all. When you actually try to look at the features that are available and start to build a few things, a few projects, you realize that you can understand things about machine learning without using the, the language that would be in academia or in, you know, all of that stuff. So the goal would be to make it more uh, accessible and to show people, because the book goes over a few projects. So it would be to, um, to show people how to get started with machine learning, build a few projects, and then people can come up with their own ideas and, and go from there. Nice, nice. Um, was there, I don't know, any, any any particular challenges you ran into, like when authoring or anything that was hard to kind of quantify well in in that format to help encourage people to kind of ramp up and check stuff out? Well, writing a book was really hard in it in itself um, because, <laughs> yeah, I mean, sure, sure, yeah. I think it's, it's hard when I knew I wanted it to be for beginners but it's it's always i think it's the same thing as when you write a, a blog post just at another level because it's like where do i stop you know diving deeper or where do i stop in terms of like where even where, yeah, where do i start like what is my base i i want to assume that people know a little bit of this but not too much because i don't want to lose them or make them scared with a weird term but then how far do I go as well? Uh, because, you know, when you sign a contract for a book, they, they ask you for a certain number of pages. So you can't, you're not going to go, you know, write forever neither. Um, and also in a book format, you can't really update um, the code, right? So it's like, I wrote it for, I think, one of the first versions of TensorFlow.js. And I think maybe a few months later, they released like V2. And I don't think there was that many changes, but you, it's hard to make sure that your code is up to date if you know open source software keeps moving and a book kind of stays the same. So that, that's one of the one of the challenges. But yeah, it's like finding ways to make it interesting for people, like not knowing at all what people want. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's definitely one of the challenges. Yeah. It's Emily again, producer for Pod Rocket, and I want to talk to you. Yeah, you, the person who's listening but won't stop talking about your new favorite front-end framework to your friends, even though they don't want to hear about it anymore. Well, I do want to hear about it because you're really important to us as a listener. 
So what do you think of Podrocket? What do you like best? What do you absolutely hate? What's the one thing in the entire world that you want to hear about? Edge computing? Weird little component libraries? How to become a productive developer when your Wi-Fi is out? I don't know. And that's the point. If you get in contact with us, you can rant about how we haven't had your favorite dev advocate on or tell us we're doing great, whatever. And if you do, we'll give you a $25 gift card. That's pretty sweet, right? So reach out to us. Links are in the description. $25 gift card. Yeah, I think I think that's a probably a an acute observation that like a lot of people in the dev space have such diverse backgrounds and things. Even like even within software development, like there's so many different places people could be coming from that it's hard it's hard to figure out like what the beginner is as far as personas. Yeah, all you can do is try, and I definitely tried. Um, I mean, I've gotten good feedback from people, so so it's nice. All I, all I want for you know is for people to get an introduction and maybe get excited and, and then, you know, they can go and do whatever they want with that knowledge. But, um, yeah, I, because in the process of writing the book, I, I read a lot of other resources and the language that is used is really not, um, is really not accessible. It, it's almost like, you know, machine learning specialists talking to each other with all their, you know, uh, jargon. And it's not really nice for people coming from outside. So I was like, oh, I don't want to be that kind of resource. I want to be the other side where um, I kind of like introduce you into that space. And I do talk about the jargon, but I define it instead of assuming that people know. Um, and then hopefully if people go from there and they go and, and read a research paper, they'll understand more what um, what's happening and they won't hesitate to go and build their own projects because hopefully they'll have a foundation that was like a nice entry into that space. And then you can, you can go and do your own research. Yeah. Nice. Do you think, do you think kind of, I guess, yeah, more philosophically here, do you think we're kind of at an inflection point of um, like machine learning and that it's going to become more accessible um, at least for like the pseudo-technical people to like kind of take it and run with it. Even if they're not like machine learning people, we're hitting the point where, it can be implemented and used. Do you think some like do you think recent developments have have made that the case, or there's still quite a bit of uh, ground to cover? I think I've seen more and more tools built for non-specialists to be able to use. Um, it's like dev tools for machine learning, but even just the fact that TensorFlow.js exists, uh, it is to open it up to the JavaScript community. Whereas before, uh, you know, TensorFlow, you know, the classic TensorFlow is in Python, so. Already you have uh, companies and people building tools and frameworks that bring more people in by making it available in different languages or showing you the different um, use cases for it. Because if you're learning about machine learning, maybe you might think, oh, all I can do is use, I don't know, financial data to make predictions, but I don't have financial data. But when you look at... um, all of the different applications now, you could, uh, you know, you can use images that with data sets that are open source, or you have models that are open source. A lot of open source uh, machine learning models are on GitHub to do object detection super fast, and and you end up using it only just like an API, like you ping an endpoint and you send it an image, and it rem- like it spits back a prediction of what's in the picture. So I've seen a lot of people building tools to kind of democratize the use of machine learning. Um, I, so I, I personally like that. Um, but in terms of 
teaching people how to make their own model, like going a level deeper. I don't think we're there yet, but maybe that's also not the point. Like uh, maybe, maybe we just want to provide the tools for people to do it easily. And maybe we don't want to focus on people actually building their own because that there's a lot that goes into making your own machine learning model because you also need a, a lot of data. And most of the time it's only companies or research centers that can have that amount of data. You as a, as me, like as a person, if I wanted to make my own uh, object detection model, I don't have any pictures or I'm not going to spend my weekend taking, I don't know, a million pictures of my fridge just so that it learns what a fridge is, you know? So it's maybe it makes sense that we're democratizing, like democratizing the tools and making a lot of models available. And maybe the layer underneath we're not quite focusing on right now. I don't think so, but. Yeah, I think that yeah, I kind of I kind of led into the next question that I planned on asking was is um, like yeah, there's there's I think a, a, a couple of different ways that like yeah, machine learning is like kind of like permeating the not the developer ethos a little bit. It's like APIs that I just call and don't have to really know what's going on. It's just like another magic endpoint that does a thing versus like really getting in the weeds and building a product around it. Do you do you think long term there'll be kind of a few providers that have like well I guess we end up with a few providers that end up with like well established models and good APIs designed around them to kind of make it easier to invoke and then like get a response back like I don't know say uh, fridges for example be like I'm just building a like you know a home furniture identification app whatever and I want people to like take a picture and I'll tell them the model of their fridge then you know dev that's doing that just calls an endpoint and gets the data back versus like are we going to be in a point where they have to pull some book about, you know, like TensorFlow and figure out how to kind of do it themselves? Well, I think we're already at the point where where providers have well-established APIs. If you look at, well, there's Google. Google has a lot of like services and, and Microsoft and Amazon. I think they all um, provide services for different types of machine learning. They all have like image detection or some uh, text thing and or sometimes you have more specialized uh ais like the one for uh for the texts one i forgot the name but now you have people using like dali like the new thing for to generate art so um but these ones are more i guess experimental but at least the fact that google microsoft and amazon are already providing uh apis that shows you that well you can set up pretty easily uh, services like this, but I actually don't think I've never used any of their APIs myself. So I don't think I've worked yet in um, on a project where I needed to. So I haven't really like used them. But I guess maybe what is what is sad is that if we then rely on these three, it means that we only think about applications that are off, that are provided by these three. Uh, like vendors or you know it's like whereas if you pick up the book uh, or a book or a course or whatever and you make your own then you have more freedom about around what you create um, but I guess it all it always depends we kind of do that in general in the tech industry we use what's popular and then you have some people who go and build up kind of like indie projects around it and you have people who just never do that um, so I guess it will it will depend on what people want. I want people to be able to branch out from the big companies and go and try and do things themselves. But then it's like, you know, not everybody has the, like, the time or even the the motivation to do it. So um, at least it's good that there's providers so people can play around with machine learning. But, um, you know, to me, the more resources there are around being more uh, 
creative and doing things yourself. I would love to see more of that. But yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think of course we're going to end up with like a whole you know range of of things available. Um, hopefully, <laughs> yeah, I think it'll it'll be yeah yeah hopefully right yeah. Um, how about how about like what were your what were your initial projects that kind of got you interested? What 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 was yeah what was scratching at you initially? Uh, so when I got into machine learning, the reason why I wanted to learn about that is because I was doing a lot of uh, experiments with brain sensors, and I ended up being stuck with what the with what the vendor was allowing me to do basically. So when you buy a brain sensor, there's a few different ones, but um, you can subscribe to uh, to states like focus or calm, or sometimes you have certain events. Uh, so you train uh, the, the the device. So you wear the device and it tracks your brain activity, and then you can train certain thoughts. So uh, thoughts of movements in particular. So either you could be training um, the device to recognize when you're thinking about pitching your finger or moving your foot. I did this one a lot. But it's like you're kind of stuck um, in what they allow you to do, right? So it's great to get started, but I wanted to go further and use my brain data with a machine learning algorithm that I would write and try to predict other things than what was defining the interface. And I realized that I couldn't go there if I wasn't learning about machine learning. So it's kind of everything that I'm learning is from something that I've done before. So I kind of like increment over time and go in different places. But um, yeah, and I, but I still haven't, I mean, I did use that knowledge in the end. I ended up, um, I ended up using my brain sensor and detecting what uh, blink looks like in terms of brain activity. So I could detect when I'm blinking right and blinking left to use that to control an interface. So, and it was really interesting to wear the brain sensor and then you blink your eyes and you can see the spike in the data coming from your brain and you can be, oh, I can see it. And you know that if, if in, the, in the visual representation of data, if you can see something like different patterns, you know that a machine learning algorithm is going to be able to figure it out pretty quickly. If the difference between maybe like a flight line and all of a sudden you have a spike is something that's quite uh, noticeable in data and that you can you can build a machine learning uh, algorithm around that to find that spike. So every time that you do the blink, then, um, you know, a machine learning algorithm is going to be, oh, there's a difference in state between before and after. And you can use that to control an interface. Yeah. I want to go further, but at least that, at least this one worked so I could validate that that my hypothesis worked and then I wanted to go a bit further. I haven't had the time in a while. But. Nice. Yeah, was this, is this like, is this data that the the uh, brain sensor was like spitting out? Is it like multidimensional? Like, is there a lot to parse? Is that, is that was that why it's kind of non, non-trivial? Yeah. There is... There is a lot to, it depends on the amount of sensors that the, that the brain sensor has. Um, mine, I think the one that I'm using currently had eight or nine, um, and it spits out a lot of data per second and it's timed. So then you can use timestamps to time events as well. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's a lot. It's kind of almost the fun part of machine learning. It's not really building the model itself. It's like figuring out what data you need in what format and, yeah, if it's timed, then you have to really track it at the time you're doing something. But yeah, <laughs> yeah that sounds like a super nerdy nerding out on data now. So. Okay. I mean, yeah, you're here, here to talk about machine learning. So I think that's uh, that's an okay thing to be doing. How about other side projects? Anything else cool you uh, have worked on or are working on right now? Uh, the latest thing that I 
built uh, was to get data from uh, airplanes that are passing above my apartment using an antenna. And that was super interesting because it was only in the browser. So all front-end JavaScript using a device with an antenna and um, looking, like learning about what is called uh, ADSB data, which is the data um, kind of like the protocol that planes uh, use to communicate with each other. And uh, it was really cool to just like be on my rooftop with my laptop and my antenna. And then I knew that when a, a plane was flying, I was receiving data that I was displaying in the browser. And like, I'm not really doing anything more with that, but it was really interesting to learn about like the format of the message that that planes, you know, send to each other. And with that antenna, I read online that I could also, uh, you can get data from the uh, International Space Station. Oh, wow. So that's yeah. like my next step. <laughs> but um, yeah, you can, you can get, um, sometimes they send, I think it's called like SSTV images or something like that, but I don't think they do it all the time. So you can sometimes receive images from space. Super cool. <laughs> yeah, that sounds crazy. So are these are these are the I don't remember the acronym you use, but like the the data that these the planes were spitting out. Like is that in a are they always just like broadcasting this and anyone can just go pick it up? So from what I understand, uh yes, it is not um secure in any way. You anybody can receive it. Uh, you your antenna has to uh be a certain length just to filter out um data at a certain frequency. And, uh, yeah, and in that data, when you decode it, uh, you get the latitude, longitude, speed. Uh, sometimes, I didn't get it all the time, but you can get the, um, you should be able to get the, the flight code, you know, um, like a flight Alaska, like AS139 or something like that. I didn't get it all the time. Uh, yeah, but, but sometimes, so then you can, you can um, kind of... Um, check it with one of these websites that track airplanes just to make sure that it's valid. So, oh, yeah, no, I did get the right plane. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's just random project. But um, but it, I did learn about how to use the web USB API and how to decode uh, certain messages and all that stuff. So, to me, I find that super interesting. <laughs> yeah, no, the, yeah, the, I've gone down that web USB API for, like, side products and stuff in the past. That stuff is always kind of, like, it's weird it's kind of niche, but like once you figure it out, it's like, oh, this is cool. Like, I'm glad I know this. I'm not, I, may, I may never use it again, but it's fun. But to you might one day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you got it as a tool on the tool belt. Awesome. Um, well, I guess, yeah, any other, anything else you'd kind of point listeners at or encourage them and encourage them to check out? Uh, in, in general or? Um, yeah, yeah, at large. Ooh, at large. Uh I just would, I mean, I just wish people were doing more weird stuff. <laughs> I feel like there was, <laughs> there was a time, I don't know if it was because of the pandemic, but there was a time where I saw more people just building weird stuff and sharing them on Twitter. And uh, I don't know if people are just tired or doing other things, but I've seen people doing less weird stuff or maybe sharing it less because Twitter is not the most, you know, the nicest place ever. Um, but, you know, if you're building weird stuff, let me know. I'd always love to, like, I get inspired by other people's projects, right? I don't wake up in the morning with random ideas. Like, usually I start from something that I see somewhere else. So, um, you know, if you want to help me build projects, you should build projects too. So then I get inspired. <laughs> but yeah, not in terms of, like, I don't have a specific tool or, or language or, or technology. Um, I'm interested in just, like, exploring how things work. So... Nice. Yeah. Awesome. Is like Twitter your main outlet, your website, or should people 
what should people check out? I mean, if people want to tell me something, Twitter is probably uh, the best place. Yeah, um, but uh, yeah, I, on my on my website, I usually share my projects or blog posts about stuff that I'm that I'm looking at. But I'm I'm not super active on Twitter. I'm more like yeah, I'm less active than I used to be, just because. People are not always nice and it's exhausting. <laughs> but uh, yeah. you don't want your like brain to continue rotting as you. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. yeah, there's like what you read. It's I need uh, it brings me down. I don't need that. So, um, but you know, but that maybe that's why. Maybe people are actually active and I just don't see it. But um, yeah, if you know, if you want to share something, Twitter is usually the easiest place to find me. Awesome. Yeah, we'll get we'll get links to those in the show notes. And yeah, what's the book called for listeners if they want to find it? Uh, Oh, it's uh, sorry. I had to remember for a second. Yeah, it's called uh, "Practical Machine Learning in JavaScript." Awesome, awesome, cool. Well, we can try to get a link, a link to that as well. Um, awesome, cool. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming online and chatting with me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hey. This is Emily, one of the producers for PodRocket. I'm so glad you're enjoying this episode. You probably hear this from lots of other podcasts, but we really do appreciate our listeners. Without you, there would be no podcasts. And because of that, it would really help if you could follow us on Apple Podcasts so we can continue to bring you conversations with great devs like Evan Yu and Rich Harris. In return, we'll send you some awesome PodRocket stickers. So check out the show notes on this episode and follow the link to claim your stickers as a small thanks for following us on Apple Podcasts.